The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Hey guys, uh, I'm Cameron. Uh, some of you got. <laughs> Some of you guys might know me as a student leader here, uh, or from playing up here on the worship team each week, but tonight, I actually want to tell you about a part of my story that I don't talk about quite as often. Uh, I'm actually not only a student at the University of Washington, graduating pretty soon here, uh, but I'm actually also a student of the great prophet Isaiah. Yeah, seriously. I've been studying with him uh, for many years. And tonight, I'm here to tell you a little bit about his story. Okay, so let's start with a bit of background on what was going on in Israel during Isaiah's time. Before Isaiah, there was King David. King David was a great king who, under God's instructions, successfully brought the tribes of Israel together under one kingdom. King David's reign is widely regarded as one of the greatest times in Jewish history, And life was good in Israel under his reign. Unfortunately, following David's reign, a long line of kings, to put it nicely, just missed the mark. Uh, Completely. (laughs) I won't get into many of the details, but they essentially just ran the nation of Israel straight into the ground. One king, for example, married hundreds hundreds of neighboring rulers' daughters uh, for political alliance, and then adopted these kingdoms' gods, bringing idol worship into the Jewish temple. Another brought slave labor into practice, which consequently split Israel into two kingdoms, the north and the south. Then, later on, another murdered the king's entire family to gain power, which then started a long line of coups with each king consecutively murdering the one before him. Uh, and that just went on for a long time. So, I mean, even just hearing the story from my teacher, Isaiah, really frustrated me. Life was so good in Israel. And not only was that ruined after King David, but it was ruined by corruption of our leaders, the ones that we count on the most. I know that for many of us, we still feel the same frustration with our government today. It seems so easy for a leader to just make the best decision for the people. But unfortunately, it's not always that simple. Needless to say, by the time Isaiah came around, Israel was pretty messed up. So Isaiah started his life growing up pretty normal. But one day, okay, and hang with me here for a minute because this next part gets a little weird. Uh, One day he found himself in the Jewish temple when suddenly... The ground shook, and God appeared before him with angels surrounding him. There you go. Artist's rendition there. Uh, At the sight of this, Isaiah suddenly realized how corrupt him and his people had become, uh, and he cried out. He said, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So basically, to summarize that, what Isaiah is saying is, I'm a sinner, I'm not worthy to be in your presence, right? 
Okay, so stay with me here because what God does next is the important part of the story. An angel flies right up to Isaiah and touches a hot coal from the altar to his mouth. And that's what's going on in the picture right there. So next, the angel tells Isaiah, he says, look, this coal has touched your lips, gone your guilt, your sins wiped out. And then Isaiah heard the voice of the master, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah spoke up, I'll go, send me. What Isaiah discovered in the temple is a God that shows grace and forgiveness. It's a God that chooses to use us to do his work when we're willing to. Now, I'll admit it, I don't fully understand the whole six-winged angel thing, burning his mouth with a hot coal, all that stuff. But what I can confidently tell you is that Isaiah's discovery of this grace and forgiveness shown to him by God changed his life forever. Isaiah left the temple with a newfound boldness, which allowed him to share God's warning to Israel with confidence that Israel's kingdom would soon fall and that God was going to raise up a new king from the ashes of Israel's past. As God warned Isaiah in the temple, Israel was already past the point of no return with their corruption. There wasn't any fixing it anymore. Because of this, his people didn't listen to his warnings, but rather his words just hardened the people. Soon after Isaiah's temple vision, King Hezekiah created an alliance with Babylon against Isaiah's warning that Babylon would eventually betray them and just destroy Jerusalem. So sure enough, over a 100 years later, Babylon did attack Jerusalem, destroying the city and their temple and sending the Israelites into exile. Now, exile is a word that I think is kind of difficult for us to understand today. Um, I mean, even just saying it, it's kind of makes you feel uncomfortable. A couple people giggle because um, we don't really understand what it means. Seriously. Um, in a world where technology can con connect us to almost anything in the world, it's hard to really understand what it means to be forced out of your home with no idea of when you'll ever return. Also for the Jews, being buried in a place separate from their ancestors was a huge deal. And while we might struggle to understand exile in America, it's very real in Syria right now. So what strikes me most about this picture when I found it is how normal all the people look. They're no different than you and me. They didn't make poor financial decisions or do anything that made them even slightly deserve this circumstance that they're in right now. These are teachers, businessmen, doctors, lawyers. And now they've been forced to either join the regime or leave immediately, carrying only what they can in their own two hands. They're away from their homes and they wonder if they'll ever experience the feeling of home again feels completely hopeless. I imagine that this is exactly how the Israelites felt being forced from their homes in Isaiah's time. Now, what I've shared with you so far is pretty heavy. Um, Isaiah's story up to this point is a story of judgment for Israel leading to exile. 
But here's the most important thing that I've come to understand from the story. It doesn't end there. Here's a passage that my mentor shared with me that describes just a little bit of the good news after the exile and what it means for us. In Isaiah 61, he writes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Okay, I know that's a lot of words to process, uh, but if you made it through that whole thing with me, I think it's a pretty beautiful picture of the good news that Isaiah offers to us. My freshman year of college, I came to UW, like most people, with big hopes, big dreams. I moved into a fraternity, Pi Kappa Phi. Uh, a bunch of my friends are here tonight. Thanks for coming, guys. Um, and although I had a great experience in the fraternity overall, it did definitely take some adjusting, uh, more than I'd expected. At some point during my freshman year, I realized that I just wasn't myself when I was at the chapter house. I would leave the inn feeling so comfortable with myself, no guard up, no worries of embarrassing myself in front of friends. But when I walked into the fraternity where I slept, ate, lived my daily life, I realized that I was keeping up a wall between myself and God, ignoring the fact that he was there with me in those moments of loneliness. When I finally acknowledged that God was there with me in those moments, everything changed. I didn't have to change myself on the outside in order to get closer to God, anything like that. Rather, all I had to do was invite God to change me on the inside, and he did the rest of the work. If you guys hear anything tonight, hear that. I didn't have to do anything to change myself in order to get closer to God. All I had to do was actively invite God to change me on the inside. And over time, he did the rest of the work. Just like Isaiah, I didn't feel worthy to do God's work. But when we believe that he's with us, not just here on Tuesday nights, not just on Sunday mornings, but everywhere, all the time, throughout our daily lives, and everything that entails, if we believe he's with us in those times, he uses us to do great things. Okay, there's just one more part of Isaiah's story that I want to share with you guys tonight before church comes up. Isaiah described to me a suffering servant that would come to do two things, restore Israel and be a light to all nations. Now, a lot of the job that God gave to Isaiah was to deliver a message of judgment. And honestly... I'm pretty thankful that that was his job and not mine. But his message, like I said before, didn't end there. Isaiah's message ends with the hope 
of this one that he describes as a suffering servant. Someone who's willing to do whatever it takes to bring hope for me and for you and for all nations. And that is a message that I want to share. Cameron Simmons, our aspiring prophet, our pod one, our mentee. Thank you for spending so much time at the feet, or at least in the pages of Isaiah, Cameron. Um, well, before I share just a few thoughts that help us bridge what Cameron has shared to the gospel, there's a, there's a few things that I want to share. Some of you may be aware I've been gone over the past three months, and most of you probably didn't know that. Like, what? This guy was gone? I, we, didn't, we didn't notice that there was uh, anything missing here. And that, is, I can pinpoint why you would think that. And it's because the staff here at University Ministries is incredible. And I can't continue for my first time in front of the inn uh, in three months without... Uh, acknowledging this amazing group of people, Janie and Chris and Ryan and Becca and Kelsey, uh, our senior staff, and then, of course, our interns, Brenna, Carly, Carly, Connor, and Ryan. See, you can tell I haven't been speaking for a while. Um, and I just want to let you know how grateful I am for, for them, and I hope that you are too, because these are people who really uh, give their lives uh, to come alongside you, uh, college students in your faith, and encourage you in it. And so um, I just want to publicly acknowledge how deeply grateful um, I am for this group of people. Uh, and then I also want to remind you about what we have coming up uh, starting tomorrow in this upcoming week of prayer. Two things that I want to highlight. First, sign up to join us for an hour in the prayer room that we've, we've prepared. I know that it seems a bit counterproductive, right? That you would take an hour out of what I know are very busy schedules for all of you to to sit and pray, but I'm here to tell you it will be the most important hour or even more if you so choose. We don't confine it to one hour if you want to do it. Uh, do it some more. Uh, but a very important hour. And then second is this. Um, on Saturday, if you would like to be a part of uh, receiving a text that will prompt you uh, throughout the day on ways that in the different places and different activities that, might, that we might be doing that will unite our voices in prayer, that we can join as a community in praying for the same thing. I'm a huge believer in the power of agreement, the power of praying in unity, and this is an opportunity to do just that. Both of those opportunities are uh, things that you can sign up for right over here where it says week of prayer. Uh, please... Uh, please consider joining us uh, for this week. It's a special time. Okay, let me see if I can uh, highlight a couple of things that, that Cameron said. For those of you that have been around this quarter, quarter, you know that we have been doing an exploration of the Old Testament through here, and our student interns have been sharing about some of the different characters, the different stories that show up in, in the front end of the Bible. And the story of Isaiah um, is, is a powerful one. Martin Luther King Jr. 
uh, once said this. He said, we must accept our finite disappointment, but never lose our infinite hope. We must accept our finite disappointment, but never lose our infinite hope. You see, the story that Cameron just shared with us of his mentor, Isaiah, and the message that's found there acknowledges finite disappointment. It acknowledges that life is hard. At risk of oversimplification, exile is just another way to say painful, disappointing, and long-suffering. In the story that we just heard, this disappointment lasted for generations. Disappointment that lasts for generations. That's the primary context of the story. The disappointment that these exiles, these refugees felt wasn't merely after a bad test or a tough quarter. It was generations. As we hear this, no doubt their disappointment would have felt far from finite. But what I hope you hear tonight is that the hope of the gospel, in fact, makes all disappointment finite. The hope of the gospel makes all disappointment finite. This is ultimately a message of hope that we are invited to as God's people, and that's simply to hope. On this side of the cross, we believe that Jesus is that suffering servant that Isaiah described, that he spoke of and hoped for. A servant that would go to any length to show us that there is a reason for infinite hope, even in the face of our very real disappointment that is still finite. And so we remember that Jesus willingly laid his life down and that in his willingness to die, that death couldn't hold him. And our hope is rooted in both those things, that there would be somebody willing to give it all that we would hope, that we would be set free, and that as that happened, as Jesus died for you, for me, and for all of us, death did not have the final word. On Easter Sunday, the tomb is empty. And so tonight, the invitation is simply this. Don't be afraid to hope. The promise is that the disappointment you experience, the shame that you have felt perhaps from something in the past, the insecurity that you have in the present, are indeed finite. Hope is a gift for now that reminds you that rescue is on the way. It's what's promised. That shame, that insecurity, those disappointments don't get the last word. It's being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. It's the invitation to dream and experience a future that is shaped by hopes and not hurts. 
It's the invitation to hope that it's true. That the suffering servant, that Jesus Christ is there and says, I got you. I got you. Let's pray. God, thank you that you, you give us hope. That your death, that your resurrection, your willingness to suffer for us and your glorious resurrection, your glorious victory over death does in fact give us hope. God, I pray for each of us that have gathered here that, that hope would be real for us in the coming days. That we would have an experience of our disappointments and insecurities and shame not getting the best of us, but that you would allow us to hope, that you would refine our vision. You would give us energy uh, to see what you are up to in our lives and, and to see how you are restoring us and all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.